0: Hi, everybody. It's Megan. Welcome back to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am so excited today to be sitting down with two women who I've been admiring from afar for a really long time. Their work is just unchallenged, unprecedented. It has added to the field of grief and loss, and it's just a tremendous resource for everybody. So, you may have already guessed who I'm talking about is the What's Your Grief team of Litza Williams and Eleanor Haley, who are based in Baltimore and have put out this year into the world a book called What's Your Grief? Lists to help you through any loss. It is one of my favorites. I have it... I have multiple copies around the house. I've given it as gifts, and I have a couple here. If anyone is interested, email us your email address and we will send you one of our copies. So let me just tell you about Eleanor and Litza. Eleanor Haley, MS, and Litza Williams, MALCSW, are the co founders of the online community What's Your Grief, one of the largest online grief and bereavement support organizations. Both are mental health professionals with a collective 25 years of experience working with people coping with all types of complicated losses and transitions. Eleanor and Litza met while supporting families who lost loved ones to traumatic and unexpected deaths in Baltimore, Maryland. Drawing on their personal and professional experience with grief, What's Your Grief was built as a resource offering concrete, practical, creative, down-to-earth, and relatable support founded on the values of psychoeducation and creative coping. It's grown to serve more than 5 million visitors each year. Eleanor holds a master's degree in counseling psychology from Loyola College in Baltimore, Maryland, Maryland and Litza received her master's degree in clinical social work from the University of Maryland School of Social Work, as well as a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Warwick in the UK. They've been interviewed as grief experts for the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NPR, New York Times, and co authored the group, the book that we're talking about today, What's Your Grief? Lists to Help You Through Any Loss. Thank you so much for being here. You're going to love this episode. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am looking at two smiling faces of two women who I have lightly stalked on the internet for a couple of years now. It is such an honor to be sitting with them and getting ready to talk about their book. I want to introduce you to them, and then we're just going to dive right in and have a really rich conversation about grief and loss. So Eleanor Haley and Lisa Williams from What's Your Grief, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. We're really excited to be here. We are doing this over Zoom, but you are some of the few that if I had gotten in my car, I could have driven to you because you guys are in Baltimore, right? Yep, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just over the line in DC. So maybe there'll be an actual coffee, a real life, no more Zoom coffee that we get to have one day. Yeah. So, <laughs> I am so happy to have you here. The way this came about, normally I'm the one doing the little bit of lightly stalking, but I've been tagging you as I've been reading your book, putting pages on my Instagram. I cannot thank you enough for the book and the work that you're doing. I'm a social worker. You guys are both social workers. Is that right? My background's in counseling. In counseling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a social worker. It all feels like social work to me, but (laughs) from the very beginning when I found your platform, it all really made sense to me. And it has this deep educational component to it, which... I'm just incredibly grateful for, particularly right now, because one of the things I'm saying a lot to people is, well, you need to get a grief informed counselor, therapist, whatever. And people say, great, where do I find that person? And then it's like crickets, because while we've been doing all this significant grief and loss... We haven't been doing a bunch of significant, you know, uptick in training. So what you offer on your website and what this book offers is just a really deep conceptual way to guide people. It's like, you know, the handrails to guide people around conceptualizing grief and loss. And then you give really concrete examples. So could you guys just give me like, How long have you known each other? How long have you been working together? Just a quick little evolution story so that our folks can kind of know who you are and what brought you to write this book.
1: Yeah, I always can remember how long we've known each other because I met Lisa when I was pregnant with my middle child. (laughs) So it's been about 13 to 14 years. I was just about to go out on maternity leave. Actually, we met working at an organization that was providing support to people at the time of a loved one's sudden or unexpected death in hospitals all throughout the state of Maryland. So we were meeting people in all different parts of the state from all different backgrounds, grieving all different, or not quite yet grieving, experiencing all different types of loss. And we were meeting them, like I said, at the time of a loved one's death. And then we also most of the time would follow them through an aftercare program, which spanned about two years. So we were also working with people at many different points in grief. And so I will share with you that Litsa and I both experienced the death of a parent in early adulthood. So our work, as is true for many people who are working in the grief and bereavement world, is informed by our background in mental health. Like I said, my Eleanor's uh, background is in counseling and then Litsa's background is in social work. But we also look at things through the lens of people who have gone through loss and who continue to grieve on these significant losses, and since then, many, many others. And so, long story short, we were often looking for a lot of different types of resources that we could provide to people, even though most of the people we were serving, we couldn't meet face to face. We were based in Baltimore, many people worked from far, far away from us. So we were looking for things we could send in the mail at the time. This was a while ago. We were looking for things online and a lot has changed in yes. the online space in terms of the types of grief and bereavement sport there is. But at the time it was pretty sparse. And then we were of course, always looking for ways we could help people find people in their communities, which is hit or miss depending on the community. Right. Uh, so as I said, long story short, we weren't finding the stuff that we wanted. We weren't finding the stuff that we thought was really helpful and comprehensive from a professional standpoint. And then from a personal standpoint, we weren't finding things that talked about grief in the way that we wanted to talk about grief in a way that was just like a normal conversation, because grief is something you learn to live with in a normal everyday way. It's a very abnormal thing in your life, but it is something that becomes a part of your life. So you have to learn how to, how to sit with it and how to talk about it. And so we, We weren't finding the types of things that we're doing accomplishing those goals and so we just said you know what I think you can start a blog this was back when blogs were cool still I miss blogs we said I think we can start a blog without having to pay much money you can do it for free we don't know how but we think we can figure it out and it's been a lot of trial and error and it still is today when we try to do anything new but we just started writing and our following just slowly grew and now i think we have over 600 articles on our website. And then it's grown into other things like a podcast. Like you were saying, there's not a lot of training for professionals. So we were doing some in-person stuff in Baltimore, but then when COVID hit, we were like, let's do some regular trainings online for professionals because people need it, like you said. And so we do that and we have some communities, one specifically for grieving people, one for grief professionals. And then of course this book and a lot of creative initiatives and things like that. So over the years, we've just kind of continue to look where we saw gaps and try to fill them in the grief support space. Oh God. I mean, the sort of organic way that this
0: unfolds, I relate to it. And I also, what I know is that you guys are growing into this space. Lisa, let me ask you this question. I'm curious about like way back in the day when you guys met and you were doing this, I have an idea in my mind that you were brought into this organization, not already knowing all the things that you all know now about grief and loss, that when I'm on your website, and I think I've said this already, the caliber of what you guys are writing about is really high. And because I come from an academic background, it's part of the reason I'm always linking and tagging because I think that the need for actual grief-informed care is so high. And one of the things that our field is sort of famous for is being like, oh yeah, I treat eating disorders. Oh yeah, I do grief and loss. Like, oh no, I know trauma. And anyone who's been actually trained in eating disorders is going to say like, well, where, who did you train with and what model do you use? So What's challenging about grief and loss, that space has not yet been created. What I would say is over the past couple of years, I have gotten a master's level that I scrambled together partly from your resources, but how did you both do that? How did you get to the place where you are now, where you've created this book, which we're going to talk about, but what was that like doing the clinical work and also kind of having to learn? I always say it's like, Being brought, you know, thinking you're going to eat at a restaurant, being brought in and told you're the short order cook. Like, I don't even have knife skills, but by the end of today, I better know how to cut an onion. What was that like for you both?
2: I think that's absolutely true for so many people in the field and grief specifically. I think that you, even people who know that they want to specialize in grief really early go through master's programs and realize, wow, this program doesn't have any coursework specifically no in grief, classes or no. one elective. The program I went to had one elective Me course too. in grief and bereavement. And one course where I say probably in, in my graduate education, where I got the most grief specific education I got was actually in a course on physical and chronic illness. Yeah. That really did a lot more on sort of adjustment to illness that overlapped into the grief space but I think when we both speak a little bit for Eleanor but I think both of us had that experience of getting into the field and realizing that you had to learn as you go that the continuing education out there was really limited I was you know as someone who's licensed always looking for where am I going to get my CE hours and realizing, wow, even in that space, it's really hard and limited. And so you start going to conferences, you start, you know, we certainly started doing the regular things, going to ADEC, going to NACG, you know, and going to those conferences, going, taking continuing education. But I think for me, one of, I guess, the the advantages I had in this space is my background before this, I, you know, my undergraduate and my first master's degree were in philosophy and I have always Loved reading and consuming, Uh. and so I think for me, I just was like, This, what's your grief? Especially, was a great way to output some of the things that I was like inputting and consuming and learning, and thinking we can actually take this and help people to understand it. And we, our intention when we started, really was to be writing and talking to people who were grieving. Like we wanted something that we felt like would connect, would have been good for us, would work for the people who we were working with, who, you know, like Eleanor said, I I think traumatic and unexpected losses, there was a lot more coming out of the hospice space. And so there wasn't, you know, as much there and just the huge range of people that we were working with and the other life stressors that they had, you know, in a place like Baltimore, there's a lot of complexity everybody is dealing with and I think a lot of that traditional stuff just didn't make sense it was like how do we translate this into stuff that is really accessible and bite-sized and gives people information that they can use at home even if they aren't gonna you know go in and see a counselor so we started I think consuming and then that changed into the output and we found that a lot of professionals though we were writing for grievers that we found so many professionals were coming yeah. to our site and then messaging us and asking questions. And that I think all guided what we continued to learn. So, both in personal practice, there was the stuff that we were seeing in our work. But then, once we were writing and creating things in which Your Grief, so we had the questions people were asking us. I want to learn more about this. I want to understand that. And so that guided our continued learning and writing.
1: Yeah, but I, yes. And I will add, like, Megan, I was. I think I felt the same way you felt, you know, where, when we were working at our old organization, like I knew some, but I didn't know a ton because I came out of a program that didn't have a lot of education. My mother had just died when I started working at this organization. Coincidentally, it wasn't what drove me into it. And so I really had that personal experience. And then I just had kind of more of a middle of the road amount of understanding. And then when we started this I've learned so much. And I think Lisa and I both share that I think we would both continue to just keep going back to school if it didn't mean having copious amounts of debt. I have a master's program that's like partly hybrid that I like look at all the time. I'll never be able to do it because I owe so much money, but we would keep doing it right. So I think we do have that mindset that we like to maybe learn more about a concept or do a little bit of reading. And then the thing, one of the things that we really saw that was missing is taking it and making it understandable. Like between the world of anontology and the academics working Can in you the group, say that word, and Can regular you say people, the word, <laughs> yeah, like regular people. There is, there's no connector. So we very much said to ourselves, like, there's so much information here. What ends up reaching, quote unquote, the people is the five stages of grief, and we want to move way past that. So we felt that there was a giant gap that people needed to start filling. And that's one of the reasons why we started writing in the style that we have in that psychoeducational way. I mean, it is so
0: rich and I really appreciate it because you guys have a nice balance between being respectful of things like, Theories about grief and loss. I, after my dad died in 2017 of cancer, and that was expected. My mom died in 2019 suddenly, and I had real trauma, PTSD, after she died. And one of the things that I was really fascinated to discover was that I've been doing grief and loss work as a trauma therapist. So, from the lens of like, there has been some sort of profound loss, loss of control, loss of health or a death, but it wasn't always a death. And you know that loss, then the energy that's created in the body in relationship to the loss. So I'd been in this space for a really long time, but when I experienced my own trauma, I came out and was like, I need to know everything. So I read all the books, right? And I still have stacks of them. My husband is like, this is the bleakest tower of texts anyone's ever seen. And sort of like on my post-it notes, I'm like, oh, this is more academic. This is more experiential. This is, you know, there's, this is personal wisdom, but not academic wisdom. And what I think is really respectful of the evolution of the work. Like if we come together 10 years from now, we're going to be saying a lot different stuff. I hope. I think it feels a little different even now than it did three years ago, but, but, The being able to say, Hey, let's talk about the people who have done the studying from a clinical standpoint. And you guys are great about being like, you know, it's not that useful. Or here's the small bit of what is useful. And I really appreciate that because mostly what I do on this podcast and other places, I'm like, you know, wardens like tasks of mourning are not relevant in any conversation I'm going to have with any human. But from a curious mind perspective, the concept that I always talk about on this podcast is like, we're all grieving in our human bodies and human bodies are actually across cultures. We can generalize about those experiences. And I just think you guys do a really nice job of being like, Hey, why don't we tell you about like where this word came from and why this word was invented and what it means and also how it's relevant and applicable. So the articles are not memes, they're articles, But they're articles that you can get through and you've learned something at the end. I went all the way through social work school and I took one class on death and dying, which was watching a video. I watched like a video of someone dying. That was the whole course. That to me is super appalling that even now people can say that they do grief work, even though they've had zero training as though it's just a thing that everybody knows how to do. And a lot of what you guys are doing is giving manageable education. Like you with your curious minds have done all the reading that other people do not want to read. And then you can come in and you can be like, well, you know, Warden or dual process model, or, you know, who are those parks and Bulby? you know, who are those people? And decide if you want to take it in and learn more about it or dismiss it. And you don't have to take a master's level class in order to do it. So I am really grateful. I want to dig in to the book. I'm going to hold it up. The cover is perfect. The size is perfect. Everything about this book, I've bought it for actually a couple of colleagues and been like, you're going to love it because you don't have to read it all the way through. You can flip through the pages. You can read it. Talk to talk to me about how you decided to put this together because it's unique. It's a series of lists. I want to know, like, how did you know to do it this way?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Because I think there, you know, there was part of us that were, was definitely like, oh God, lists, is that just going to sound absolutely roll your eyes, buzzfeed, you know, about a topic that's so huge and important. But one of the things that we knew about our site is almost exactly what you just described that experience of is so many people came to us. And when we were writing, you know, we started writing in 20 end of 2012. And almost immediately, I think one of the pieces of feedback that we heard time and again from people was I was so relieved when I found your site because unlike you, who was getting through dense books, stacks of books, a lot of people people don't. don't. And they were like, people were giving me all these grief books. I had, I was buying all these grief and I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't get through anything. And when I found your site, it was such a relief to be like, oh, a manageable, digestible article about something that's actually relevant to what I am thinking, feeling, experiencing, you know, at this moment. Okay. And we really didn't want to write a book for the sake of writing a book. I don't think we ever set out at the beginning of What Your Grief and was like, someday we're going to write a book. We really e- existed in the online space always, but one of the things that we said is like, we don't want to write a book unless we know that it is filling a specific gap or meeting a specific need. And one thing that we did feel like was a need was something that captures what that what what the website captured it was like, how do we create a book that does that thing where you can not have to read it cover to cover, where you can bounce around through it, where you can just read two or three pages and really feel like you took something from that and then set the book down and maybe you don't pick it up again for another month and that's totally fine. And I think that was what we were hoping for. And we felt like this format, it might not have been the only way to achieve that, but we felt like it was kind of the most accessible way to achieve that. And who knows? I think there are some people who might pick it up and be like, what's going on here? But we thought that that benefit was outweighed the risks of maybe being off-putting to a few people.
0: I love the way you describe that. And I feel like this is women in the work who are like, well, I didn't want to be inefficient and duplicate the work of someone else, which is the reason I read all the books was like, someone is going to make this make sense. I want to read to the audience. I could tell you that this is like my favorite list, but- What I generally do, and this book is all over my house. So just before we got on the podcast, I was like, you guys, where's the book to my family upstairs? my son was like, I think it's on the porch. I'm like, on the porch, it will have gotten wet. We had so much rain. Uh But this is on page 145. And I feel like it's such a good example of maybe like the ethos of learning, right? There are a lot of books out there that are like, let me tell you what to do and what not to do. And I cannot describe how much your book is not that. Your book feels like a strong coaching mechanism where you are saying, I'm just going to give you some information that we've learned and from other people. And then we just believe that you can do this. You're going to figure it out. And so if this list is useful and you say it a bunch of times, if this works for you, great. If it doesn't, move on, which I really appreciate. But this is 145 and it's chapter six and it says, Ways Grief Can Change Your Priorities. And I love this, right? Because when you're on grief and loss boards, and I do this work with people in writing workshops is I want people to write down everything that they believe that they've lost. And this is one that people miss all the time is that you still care about things, but you may care about them in a different order than Mm -hmm. where you started. I'll read the list, which is one loss disrupts your habits. And you talk about the physical environment and how your your brain being in and out of mindlessness changes, which is just like, just pointing that out to people is so significant and important. This is my favorite one, loss clarifies what's important to you. One of the conversations I have as a therapist with people all the time is they're like, I don't even care about being a brownie troop mom. I can't even pretend I don't have the energy. And I have no idea why I ever did it in the root of it changes. What's important to you is all those secondary losses of people and the way in which people understand you. I love this list. Grief forces you to protect your energy. I, I want to get that as a tattoo because grieving is this incredibly energetically expensive process. And so all those boundaries, and again, you have other chapters where you use those words, but I just, in my head, you guys must have sat down and been so clarifying about each one of these sentences. Grief reminds you of your own mortality. And again, that's one in grief and loss work. I'll, I asked that question, I, you know, is it making you worry about your own death? And people are like, nope, no, not at all. Uh uh-uh. <laughs> And then it's like, well, so we're going to circle around. Mm-hmm. Does this make you worry that your children might not? Men- no, no, no. And then, you know, the third time there's tears and like, I just can't stop thinking about what would happen to my family if you, so I just love that it's like on the list, this is normal. You're going to think about mortality. That's what's going to happen. Grief can make you more selfish. So particularly the women that I work with who define themselves as caretakers of others and no longer can play that role because they need all their energy for themselves. Saying out loud to folks, no, no, self-centeredness, needing to take back your energy for yourself is actually a totally healthy grieving process. Is so empowering and I just freaking love it. And grief can make you more selfless that you can have a bigger perspective of what it's like for other people in the world. And everybody who loves the story of like, this bad thing happened to me and then traumatic growth sprung up. But the idea of selflessness as sort of being part of the grief process. Mm-hmm. So that that's just one of your lists, but that is one of my favorites where I feel like it almost sounds like you're contradicting yourself, but that's because that's what grief is. Grief is all of the things. How hard was it? I mean, maybe you don't remember this list in particular. Did these things sort of pour out because you've been talking about them for years or was it like, do we mean the word selfish? Should we say, do we mean self-centered? Like how, what was the writing process of of this like for you guys?
1: It was kind of a mix of things. I think we've been writing for so long that there was a lot that we've already said and written and said and written again that we knew we wanted to include because it's just really foundational in how we conceptualize grief and life after loss. It was hard to be concise. Lita and I always joke like we're not really great with brevity. A lot of our articles are like 1200 plus words. So we are often, you know, we're not great at shortening things down. We also are two people who very much think that language is important. So we are careful about the words that we choose. And that's one of the things that I find very disorienting about having a book in print because you can't go back and change it later. Like I can go back and edit an article. I cannot go back and edit this book. So I'm a little bit afraid about how uh, in five years, we might look back and be like, oh, that's not how I think about it anymore. The word I would use because we're constantly evolving how we're thinking. Yeah. So I think that it was a mix of stuff that was already out there for us, already kind of in our heads, already written. And then a mix of really having to fine tune and add and make choices about what to say and how to say it.
0: Yeah. As someone who's written books and is writing books, the crippling power of like, once it's out there and I've written it down, I live in constant fear of like colleagues being like, you used the wrong word. That's what this is. That's that's old science, Megan. Those are old concepts. And I feel like grief and loss really has that, right? Because we're still coming to understand it better and coming to understand the brain and the body connection better. So most likely the things that we're writing- we are going to want to be like, ah, crap. I would say that differently now, but I'm also curious. What is, what is the big hope for the book? Because you said a couple of times, it wasn't our goal. Uh, We have a different way of doing the platform. So what feels like a good result for you in having the book out there?
2: Sure. I mean, I think there's, a couple of big things that come to mind for me. I don't know if I would answer differently, but I think for me, I think one thing is that we really do hope that the book reaches some people who are grieving non-deaf losses of different sorts. Like, I think we really think a gap in. Not just like the literature, not just the books and the blogs and the whatever, but really in the way a lot of grief and bereavement has looked at grief is that they say grief and bereavement, but what they mean is bereavement, uh, even thanatology, right? This is a, this is death and dying. It's not talking about our human response to losses of all sorts. And I think that personally and professionally has been really it's just so formative for us is the world of non-death loss. For me, I had someone, I had my sister's partner who was like a member of our family died of an overdose, but he and my sister had a long-term addiction. And I was very aware of how much of living with someone you love who has a substance use disorder is grief upon grief upon Mm -hmm. grief. And again, I think we practice in Baltimore where we're working all the time with families who have loved ones who are in foster care or incarcerated or have been through this system where there are so many different losses that are so obviously grief. We ran a group for years up until COVID in a large no barrier homeless shelter in Baltimore. And many people who were coming to that group, they might come because it was a death related loss that brought them in. But ultimately once we started talking about grief and loss, it was so many losses. And so I think I really hope that the book normalizes that and finds people who are grieving non-death losses. And that I think is big for for me. I think the other thing I really hope is one of our other observations is I think in the world of grief books and in mental health's approach to grief in general is that there's just really a um, priority given or privileging to people who are those more intuitive grievers, more emotional grievers who really... Oh want to talk and want to go to a support group and want to go to counseling and do those things that mental health has always said this is the way that you cope with your issues and we know that there are so many other ways that we can cope with grief other than just therapy and support groups and we know that instrumental grieving this more cognitive way of grieving that's more physical and more action-oriented is a really normal healthy way to grieve too And we really think that this book, we hope certainly it will speak to all types of grievers. But I think we do hope that for those who are a little more instrumental, that it might tap into a little more of that, the like cognitive learning piece, the what do I do piece, some of the normalizing those experiences, but also just feeding that type of griever. So I hope that it reaches some of those folks too.
0: So I guarantee that there are people who are listening right now who are like, wait a second, what? With the intuitive versus instrumental griever. So for those folks, go get this book. You can also go write on their website because you guys write about this. But it's part of what we talk about in this podcast. And I don't have it here because it's in my office, but I have this, I laminated it like you would get a menu at a restaurant. And it's it doesn't say intuitive and instrumental. It just says grieve is a verb. And here are the things. So talking with a friend and planting a flower garden are both on there because people have told me that those are things that they did in the energy of their grief or that they felt their grief while they were doing those things. So for listeners who are like, I need to know more about that because I've been shamed or I've been minimized or I have been confused or the number of people that come into my office that are like, I did not grieve. I have not grieved my mother. And what they mean is I didn't spend hours and hours crying. And when I say to them, you spent four months packing up her house, that is grieving. There's like this huge relief because we don't have the general education about what it means. And people throw all these words around like they're the same. So for folks who just heard what Lisa was saying and wanted to like know more about that, that is your reason right away to go and get the book because you guys do describe these things. And I think our hope- in grief work is to normalize and help people feel less alone and to feel hopeful about the process. It's a totally natural process to be grieving. A lot of the work that I do right now is inside companies, and the amount of loss in the workplace is out, is overwhelming. I mean, I've used this example a couple of times, but there's a guy that I worked with who his wife is an interior designer. And I think probably has picked out everything, including like the cup that holds the the toothpaste in their house. And one of the people in his office was like, do you want to pick out the office carpet? And so he got to pick out the carpet in his office. And then four months later, they closed that office and then they let go of the lease. And he more than once in my office brought up well, over Zoom, brought up the fact that he like really was sad that he didn't get to be in this office space where he'd picked out the carpet that had meant so much to him to be able to do something like that. And I was like, so that's grief. And he was like, don't be ridiculous. I'm not grieving a carpet. And I was like, <laughs> you can have all the judgment about your grief <laughs> that you want, but I am just telling you like the color blue is blue. That is grief. You are grieving and that's totally Okay. And when we're looking holistically about the conversations people are having about how hard it is to go back to work, you will notice that the conversation no one is having is about the amount of grief, not just bereavement, but grief about going back to work. We can't go back. We have to reinvent. And the more we're able to invent and reinvent and co create, with the concepts of what does it mean to be a human griever? One of the companies that I work with, one of the questions that they ask at the, uh, in Zoom meetings, is anybody in active grief right now? Is any is anyone in the process of losing anything? Is anyone celebrating or winning? Do you guys want to share any of those things? So just like normalizing both ends of the spectrum, we can talk about those things. We're not going to turn into a mental health center. We're not going to report you. We just assume that you have emotional experiences and we have seven minutes here at the beginning of our Zoom to talk about those things because actually we're human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're
2: humans in this place and it helps for us to understand the humanity of what everybody is going through. And I understand why there has been this feeling like we need to like protect the word grief and save it for death related loss or save it in that way. But I think when we help people to see that grief is this spectrum, right? There can be this really intense earth shattering loss experience where we grieve things that turn our entire world upside down. And then there can be this spectrum of different levels of, And you know, and we understand that with so many other experiences, but I think with grief, it is hard sometimes to give people that permission. So I think it can be so Really liberating and normalizing and validating when people do have a professional sitting there with them saying, No, it it is grief, and you're allowed to give it that name and look at it through that lens. And I think it, it really, you can just see and feel for people sometimes the relief that comes once they're able to label that way.
0: I want to ask you guys a question that gets asked to me a lot, which is you're at a cocktail party or something and people are like, what do you do? Well, like, oh, I'm a trauma specialist and I do grief and loss. And people are like, oh my God, like why that's awful. Why would you do that? Well, you know, or, oh, I need to ask you about my sister. It's sort of like one or the other. But one of the things that, that people who are clinical are taught to say is, well, we have boundaries and we have ways and we know, and we take good care of ourselves. And that's why we can do this work because it's not overwhelming. And I have stopped saying that because it's a bold face lie. I was never ever trained on how to keep myself regulated. I have 27 years of therapy under my belt. But these past two, two and a half years, while you guys have been writing this book, and you know, as the book came out and you guys are doing your work, what has it been like? And what are you actually doing to be able to stay? In the work, everybody's laughing. Um, see it, but everyone's yeah. laughing. Is that a fair question? I'm asking, yeah. I really want to know to answer that question that everyone asks us, which implies, hey, you must have some way. And what yeah. I say is there no, we were never taught that. Anyone who tells you that is just lying, actually. Yeah.
1: Honestly, it's funny. I can only speak for myself and the people I know who work in feel oh. related to what we do, but they are probably on the worst end of people who are good at having boundaries and saying, no and taking care of themselves. Helpers are not always that great at helping themselves. I think Lita and and I are constantly a mess. And I think she would own that as well. It's been really hard working from home. I have a toddler here half the time. It's a disaster. Most days, I think being able to stay in the work, I think we're lucky because we, get to decide what paths we want to walk down and we're not in a job where what we do on a day-to-day basis is dictated and so I do think that we prevent a little bit of burnout by being able to go down some paths that make the most sense for us and also we are able to say to each other like I can't I can't do that I'm not doing that and usually the other person will pick up the slack or we'll we'll take a different route. So we're really lucky about that. One thing that I do find hard because we, like you said, and like we were talking about, like we do want to learn a lot, right? We want to be up to date about what's going on. We want to do the reading. You know, we get sent emails all the time from people who have brand new books and we want to be able to pay attention to those things. There's, you know, a show that has grief themes in it. People ask, have you watched it? And I want to want to, but I don't. So something that I found when I'm not working, I don't want to listen to podcasts, no offense, about grief. I don't want to watch television shows about grief. I don't want to read books about grief because it would be way too much. So that's one thing that I think is kind of unfortunate because I do think I miss out on a lot of maybe the cultural conversation or things that are happening in the here and now because I have drawn that boundary. But Lately, that's just where my head's been at. I don't know, Lisa, if you would say anything different for yourself or add anything.
2: Yeah, I think the one thing I would add in terms of that get trial by fire getting thrown in and then you have to learn for yourself, you know, you don't get taught in grad school how to do it and whatever. I do think that I would say I feel grateful every day that the work, Eleanor, where we met, it was kind of as intense as as end of life jobs get I mean we were in the hospital at on the day you know that people were coming in having lost someone to a homicide a suicide and overdose so it was that moment and we worked 24-hour shifts for to have that continuity in the hospital so you might get there at one in the morning with that family and you were there until midnight with them And you'd then been up for 30 hours. And yes, it was wonderful that in the hospital, they had that person, that whole first devastating day of their crisis. But that means that you just worked, you know, an unreasonable number of hours. Uh, And then you had to figure out managing how you continue to support that family in days, weeks, months, years, following and what that looks like. And because of the nature of that work, it forced me really quick to realize, wow, I am going to burn out in six and a half seconds if I don't figure out some skills for managing this. I think personally, this isn't like helpful to other people, but <laughs> it's the reality for me. I have ADHD and I fit that typical ADHD, but you know, one of those kind of, I don't want to call it a stereotype. It's just like a, one of the benefits of ADHD of, of for some types of ADHD of really thriving under crisis and stress yeah. and pressure. Like it's really good for my brain. It is a way that, you know, you. Yeah. and so I think part of it for me is that there are things where I realize I'm not impacted the way that someone else would mm. be because my brain, the, the certain ways about how an ADHD type for yeah. some people works just means that you are a little bit more able to tolerate some of that. So I do think part of it is just maybe a little bit of that part of me. I'm lucky about that piece. And then, yeah, I think the other thing was that job certainly in order to stay there. And I think we saw that with other people, you either learned how to figure out how you were going to turn your phone off, trust your colleagues to turn something over after you've been working for 30 hours and say, I'm you know, I'm so attached to this family and what's happening with them, but also I need to go home and take care of myself and sleep. And I need to trust that now tomorrow, my colleague is going to do just as good of a job as I did. And I can walk away from that. And I think those sorts of things help you to realize you can't look at yourself as indispensable. You can't look at yourself as the key to anyone else's make or break of anyone else's healing and that that helps in depersonalizing.
1: Oh, I love
0: that answer. I love that it doesn't sound like, you know, the insert page from an Oprah magazine of like, well, we do a lot of lavender baths and we set a lot of boundaries, you know, I think, yeah. um, we send, I think we send a lot of
2: text messages
0: to each yeah. other that say
2: things like I'm sorry I feel awful today I don't think I'm going to be able to get out of bed or meet any of the deadlines that we said and that I think we both support each other through that too. And just being able to say like, you know, we're a disaster sometimes and that absolutely. Okay.
0: But one thing that I do think is worth saying out loud, particularly in the intensity of whether you're doing clinical grief work, whether you're supporting another griever, whether you are grieving yourself is the idea that you do regulate in connection to somebody else. So I did trauma work as an individual trauma therapist in my own office. I work in DC. So a lot of who I was seeing were people who had traumatic events happen on other countries, defense contractors, people couldn't say a word to anyone else about these things And again, the ethos is like, well, therapists have a lot of ways of, you know, taking care of themselves. And I'm like, do they then tell me what they are? Because I've been doing this for years and I don't know those therapists who are doing those things. But I do think being able to do what we just did, which is be like, oh no, it's an actual shit show. And most, for most people, these past couple of years have been really, really awful You know, just that, just the nodding and the smiling and the laughing about it is regulating, and you guys know, but like it goes back to that, like, Stephen Porges and the the theories of how our brain regulates itself in social connection, and I think One of the big themes of grief is isolation, is this idea that because we have not been educated, we haven't been talking about it since we were children. We haven't been like, well, one day we'll grieve and then we'll feel really lonely. And unlike anyone else, it'll feel like our world ends and it's going to impact our body and our mind. Things that we could know, we just don't Say that out loud to people. And so people feel really fucking crazy when they're in these spaces, whether they're bereaved because a person died or they just like cannot believe how destabilizing a divorce was or a miscarriage or being laid off. They don't have to, but they do. We leave them to feel crazy. And I think primarily what happens in that space is like people want to show up, but they don't really because the culture has not opened wide. It's like, I don't know how to do it. Okay. There's lots of things that we don't know how to do though. There's so many things. I don't know how to use Canva on my computer, but I'm just going to keep trying until I make a meme. There's lots of things. And the example I use all the time is, yeah, no, people don't know how to have sex either, but they fumble their way through that process and nobody implies because it's awkward, you should stop because it's awkward, figure it out and talk about it and be awkward together. But I do really think for the clinicians, for the humans, having a person that you can send an honest text to and say, it is all so fucked up right now. And I am, I'm doing a hard thing. And maybe the hard thing is just not leaving this meeting. That you are tethered to the other person. You feel less crazy. And I think one of the things that's been super hard in COVID is that we've had less of those tethers. Mm -hmm. again, just sort of taking it back to the book, you write a lot of the same concepts like 50 different ways. So if it makes sense to you here, think about it here. If it makes more sense to you here, think about it this way. If it makes more sense to you here, think about it this way. But it really feels like just a friend who's like, you're all right. I know that's normal. It's okay. And also you may not know this, but this was on the news. Like it just has this really gentle like handholding. So it's just a reminder out there in the world that like part of what grief does is, is make us feel very isolated and alone. Yeah. And when you are isolated and alone and when you're in any feeling for too long, it can be something that goes from like how I feel to who I am. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think part of what your book is trying to say to people is this is how you feel. Those feelings are normal. Here's a way to come at them and also just stay connected, also just stay connected to the people that are, that are doing the work that are feeling the feelings. And also that's everybody, by the way.
2: I mean, I think we talk about this all the time too. I think there are many people, right? Like that idea that grief, it often, all of a sudden you start looking around at the world around you after you've experienced a loss. And then suddenly people are like, oh my God, loss is everywhere. Grief is everywhere. It's all grief," you know? And it's just often, once you see it, you sort of can't unsee it and how pervasive it is and how it's everywhere. And, you know, I really, the thing that you said that I think I've thought about a lot recently and maybe in part because we've been putting together a continuing education on this, so maybe it's top of mind, especially, but I really do think that there is an underestimation um, for people in private practice about that impact of their own isolation in that, and I think as the science comes out more and more, you know, I just took the CEU where they had presented really interesting information about looking at the physiological experiences of what is happening to therapists in the room with clients when they are experiencing and somatic countertransference and traumatic countertransference and the bodily responses, and if we know that biobehavioral synchrony is real and that we align with people and that mirror neurons are real and that that we're having this experience. And that one of the things that can be really grounding and reconnecting is then being able to walk out of a really hard session with a client and then walk in and see your coworker and just be able to ground and connect with another human in that way. And I think a text message helps and is wonderful but I do think there is a piece that is different that we miss when we're not in a space with other people where we're able to get connection that way. There's a lot to that. I think we underestimate. And like you said, of where, what are we going to be talking about in 10 years? I think we're going to be talking about that a lot more. I think we're going to be talking about the fact that maybe we underestimate how, when we bring people together in support groups of how much What is happening physically in that room with people's- Right, unstated, unsaid, just the regulation. Just the regulation and what is happening in those spaces that we maybe aren't doing as much as we should on the front end to help people understand those pieces and think about how we help people to regulate that stuff. I have so much gratitude that
0: Eleanor and I have each other (laughs) because I don't think I could do it alone. Well, it's the answer you both give about how do you stay in the work? And I'm sure you have this also. I have so many people who are leaving the work, who are leaving the work to do nothing else. And that's not what they hoped and planned for themselves. And so in my mind, it's like, well, we're asking helpers to keep helping in the same old way, the way we're asking grievers to grieve in the same old way. And we need to be thinking about it differently. And I'm so grateful that you guys are. I want to be respectful of your time. I want to ask one last question. If you looked across the, the spectrum of grief and loss and could just in the whole spectrum of, let's say, across the globe, just change one piece, you're no longer going to believe this, or I'm just going to let you know this and everyone's going to know it. Is there a piece that you're, I mean, I always pick, let's just let people know that the stages of grief are just not a real thing. Like anyone's stages of grief are not a real thing. I would just array, like the world is flat that no one believes that anymore. We just take that out so that people don't have to constantly be saying, when am I going to be done? But do you guys have a thing of, I just really wish people could have this. They could know this. If they had this piece of information or if they stopped believing this, if we could just pull that out of the shame spiral around grief and loss, I just think the world would be a better place. No, Megan, I don't, haven't ever thought of that question. Is a totally fair answer, by the way.
1: I could probably come up with a lot of answers if I had some time to think Yeah, about. I think that something that... I'm constantly having to clarify if I could reverse that, it might make things easier. And I think it does relate to the five stages of grief. I think that a lot of people come into grief and loss with this idea about it, that they're going to get over it and be done with it. And that's just not really how it is. And I think if people understood that just like all sorts of other big experiences in your life. Loss is a big experience that becomes a part of your like motherhood. That's, yeah. That's exactly. what I say all the
0: time. No, one's ever yeah. asked me, like, are you back? Right. You had babies, but are you back to like, what are you talking yeah. about?
1: I think the thing that is, is confusing to people and that is frustrating that we're constantly having to clarify and redefine is this idea that people can't you to revisit their experience, revisit their grief and loss, stay connected to their experiences, stay connected to their loved ones. Grief is something that impacts you and changes you and becomes a part of your story. And my mother died many years ago, over a decade ago, but it's still a touch point that I continue to revisit. And not just because of the work I do, but because her not being here is a part of my everyday existence. So I just think it's important for people to understand that grief is just a human experience and it becomes a part of who we are as a human. And it's something that we will continue to think about and revisit and that will continue to give us a hard time, even years and years and years down the road. And it doesn't mean that you haven't completed your grief. It doesn't mean that you haven't recovered properly. It doesn't mean that your grief is unresolved. It just means that you had something big happen in your life that continues to have an impact on you. And I think we use all these words that make it seem so much more complicated than it really is. It's like many other human experiences that stay with us. So that's one thing I just wish we would stop using some of, and we, we probably have done it at times too, but just some of the language that leads people to believe that in anything related to grief and loss, we get to this plane of being okay or better right. and never bad. I think you even at the beginning touched on the fact that there's often sort of contradictory yeah narratives going on and I think that's because that's what it means to be a human right on the one end of the spectrum some really good positive experience about things and then some that are not so good or we feel two things that feel in conflict with each other that are not actually in conflict because we can feel a lot of things at one time or you know grief and death has brought up a lot of new paradoxes for us and so I think that it's important that we understand that as humans, we're never going to just get to a place of good and be like, okay, I'm forever good. If you do great, like I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I, hope I'm, I hope that happens. We don't, don't trust like, you, but we're happy. Yeah. for you. We're
0: I'm like not, gonna, I'm to not counting
1: able. on it ever happening for me because that's just not how it is. We feel all ends of the spectrum. So anyways, I guess that's my,
0: that's really- a beautiful answer that I really, that's a gorgeous answer. And I live in that hope too, that people will come (laughs) to understand that we integrated and it's with us forever. And that's not a problem and it doesn't need to be fixed. Just a life experience. Right. Lisa, how about for you? Do you have something? Well, I I certainly agree with
2: Eleanor's. Uh, I couldn't agree more with that. This one is maybe, it's hard for me to distill one thing. And this one is very death specific. So I sort of almost hate to say it's the one thing because it is death specific, but I do think for me, it maybe would be helping people to understand that if you want to have a relationship with the person who died, you'll always be able to do that. And it will always grow and evolve and change. And it's not just your memories and like looking back into the past, it will be the way that they continue shaping who you are and the things you do in the world and the way other people will get to know them through your stories and it will be being able to let go of some of the stuff that they imprinted on you that you're like I want to get rid of that now and it'll be holding on to the things that you want to hold on to and the full range of them and that if you want that to be what it looks like that is so much of what grief is is learning to have a relationship with someone who died through those ongoing connections and I think if we all in the world knew that not just for ourselves, but for the people around us, if we understood that that's what people grieving are doing is they're often trying to figure out how to keep having a relationship with someone who's gone that I think we would just be better. We'd just be better.
0: I love that. And I'm really, again, personally grateful that you brought up that example. I find that super tricky for myself And again, it's sort of like the intuitive and the demonstrative sort of grieving that I don't often think about an ongoing relationship with either of my parents who have died, but I crave that and I yearn for that. And I practice it almost like a spiritual practice where I will meditate and ask for the consciousness to think of, you know, my sister is much better at it. She was here this weekend and the number of things like we walked into a store and a song came on and she was like, oh, that's daddy. And it was like a song that I wouldn't have even heard it. So I love that. And I also think that's lifelong work. That's lifelong grief work is to be able to, when someone is not in front of you and that relationship is not here in an active way, to keep it active in your own way and to know that there's the hope of that. You guys are such a delight. I am so excited. I'm going to remind people that I always have multiple copies of the book. So if for some reason people don't, can't get this book on your own and it'll be in the show notes, just DM me and my team will send you a copy because we love it and we believe in it. And I really hope that we stay connected. I want to have all these conversations. I love the way you think. I love the way you write. And I really am just incredibly grateful for your platform and your patience on all my Crazy questions on this podcast. One of the things for the podcast for me has been that thing, which is I get to socially and professionally connect, have these deep conversations. I was very isolated as a single practitioner, and this podcast has been just such an incredible gift in that way to like, hey, I get to talk to people who also. You know, want to talk? I'm glad I didn't have a podcast and it didn't exist when I was like 12 because I would have been <laughs> calling all my favorite rock stars and Kurt Cameron and all that stuff. But this is this is much more meaningful to me. So thank you both. Congratulations on the book and the work. And we'll just see you out there in the yeah. in the world of grief and loss. Oh, I know. Thank
2: you so much for having us. And and hopefully we can do something in in real life since we're right down the road. I would love that.
0: Hey, everybody. Just a quick favor. If you're enjoying the podcast, could you go to wherever it is that you're streaming Grief is My Side Hustle and just click follow so that way you know when a new episode comes out and also it hits the algorithm and lets people know this is a podcast that people value. And if you had time to come over to Apple Podcasts and go and give me a rating and, and give some description of what you've liked about the podcast. That would be so amazing because it really does help folks who are out there looking for something to listen to that's going to help them find the podcast. Thanks so much. See you next week.